Good morning, Valley Bible Church. Good to see you all this morning. It is uh, spring on the calendar, but uh, I don't know what's happening every day. At least we have some sun out this morning, but it's kind of like every time the sun comes out, then the rug pulls out from Ha ha, it's not really spring yet. It's raining, it's snowing in the mountains. But I'll tell you this, we know that uh, we there is one who... Uh, controls the times and the epochs and the seasons. He ordains them. And spring will come. It comes every year. It will come because God has ordained it to be so. And at the same time, when we sometimes look at our lives and things don't seem to be going as we think they should be, um, God ordains the times and the epochs and the seasons of our lives as well. And so it is to that, God, that we turn this morning as we are continuing in our study of 1 Corinthians. We are in chapter 6 this morning, just moving right along at a hot pace. Well, not that hot, but anyway, we are moving along. Chapter 6, we are beginning this morning, and um, it's going to take us a couple weeks, a few weeks. I'm not going to say how many weeks to get through chapter 6, but we are working on it. And so our passage is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. If you have your Bibles and you are able to, if you have a phone or tablet or your Bible with you, a scroll, whatever you might have, I invite you to stand and give attention to the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we are reading this morning, verses 1 through 8. The Word of God, please give it its proper attention. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law between, uh, before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. And God's people said, Amen. And it's hard to say a hearty Amen to that, isn't it? It's these things ought not to be. Would you join with me as we pray? Father, we're grateful for the Word of God that is always very clear. We're grateful for you because you are great, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. For you are to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols. But you, Lord, made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before you. Strength and joy are in your place, and we are in your place. We seek to ascribe to you as families of the earth the glory and the strength that is due your name to bring the offering of our very lives this morning to come before you and to worship in holy array. We tremble before you as does the whole earth 
because the world is established firmly and will not be moved because of you. The heavens are glad and rejoice, and so does the earth, and so do we this morning. But we come to you this morning with fear and with a consciousness of our own sin, yes, but also a declaration of righteousness imputed through Christ. So boldly we become, we come before you, the great God of the universe who has made all things and made us for your glory. And may we find that out this morning. To the glory of Christ, we ask these things. Amen. Last night, Tara and I were on our way to a concert and listening to the radio and the news was on. And this national news story came over that these parents were suing their children for not giving them grandkids. Silly, right? I mean, crazy. I mean, we just go, that's an audacious story. Who would do such a thing, right? Families suing each other, especially for something like that. And yet that's what Paul is dealing with in the passage we just read, is the family of God suing other brothers and sisters. It's audacious. It's horrible. Just, I mean, the, war, the reason a story like that made the, the national news was because of the very fact that this shouldn't be happening. Nor should it be happening in the church as well. Now, we've been addressing sin in the camp and how to address sin in the camp. What do we do with it? The Corinthians are are dealing with this man who is uh, publicly known to be an immoral man. Everybody knows about it and nobody's doing anything about it. And in fact, uh, the church is very proud. They're very Corinthian about their attitude. Well, yeah, well, we're very tolerant about these things, don't you know? And we love this guy because he's, he's one of us. And as Chris said last week, I think very aptly said, sin is not like a benign tumor. It's not benign in any sense of the word. It is damaging. It has to be dealt with. It has to be cut out because sin will spread. It will spread in the camp. It will spread in the family. It will spread in the church. And therefore, the necessity that Paul is is calling them to, to deal with sin in the church. And Paul is still dealing with the same subject in chapter 6 that we just read, verses 1 through 8. But he's turning the application to another direction. And that is the application of a different kind of sin, which is the sin of brother suing brother before the world and bringing shame to the gospel of Christ. It is sin. And he's dealing with it. We're going to talk about it from this aspect and the aspect of the gospel because the Corinthians clearly do not understand the gospel quite yet. But the gospel is not only that by which we are saved, but it is also that by which we live. We often think of the gospel as that's our ticket to heaven. We believe Christ died for my sins and rose from the dead. I believe in that. I ask for forgiveness. I declare that I'm a Christian. Now I get to go to heaven. That's just the beginning. The gospel is, is everything about Christ, the principles of his life, the, the, everything that he taught and he lived, even that for which he died, the principles of compassion and mercy and grace and forgiveness and mutuality and the glory of God. Those are all principles of the gospel. They're found throughout the scriptures. 
So we're not only saved by the gospel, but we are to live by the principles that the gospel espouses. And that's what Paul is doing here. So as we apply the gospel to this situation in Corinth, we're going to see three things. And the first one is in the first three verses where we see that the gospel, the gospel is, is sufficient to resolve disputes in the church. It is, it, and I, I hesitated to even use the word sufficient because it's mean, the gospel is more than sufficient. It is more than adequate. We have all that we need and more to resolve disputes when they happen amongst us. And they weren't doing that in Corinth. But we do have it, and that's what he's telling them, that the gospel is sufficient to resolve these disputes. He says in, in verse 1, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law? Now, I like the New King James Version here, because the very first word in the original is the word, Dare you? And the New King James says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before saints? The great Baptist grammarian A.T. Robertson said, The word dare is an argument in itself. Because it demonstrates the, the, you have the audacity to do this thing. Paul's language is meant from the from coming out of the blocks here to, to jar the Corinthians. Dare any of you bring lawsuits against one another in the courts and, and, and not in the church before, uh, instead of be, you take them before unbelievers? This is not conduct which is expected of believers in the gospel. When he says the unrighteous, you take them before the unrighteous versus the saints. He's not saying anything about these unrighteous judge being, judges being particularly evil or that they can't even get justice in civilian uh, civil courts. But he's just saying that they're not Christians. They have a different worldview. The ethics of the gospel are different. The values of the unbelieving world are not the values of the church. And the values of the world are not to be the values of the saints, are they? So, as Leon Morris says here, he's not complaining that believers would not obtain justice in heathen courts, but saying that they had no business being there at all in the first place. When you have these disputes amongst yourselves, you have all that you need to resolve them. And he, said, he makes his case this way by saying this in verse 2, Or do you not know? This is the first of six times in the rest of chapter 6, in this chapter, that he's going to raise this question. Or do you not know? I don't know that they do know, but he's, he's telling them this is the truth. The saints will judge the world. Believers will judge the world. And he says, if the world is judged by you, are you not competent? Don't you have enough sense to constitute the smallest courts to resolve things here in, in, in a small venue? And then he says in verse 3, do you not know that we will judge angels? If we will judge angels, he says, how much more matters of this life? We're going to judge the world. We're going to judge angels. Don't we have what we need to resolve issues and disputes in the church? And the answer, of course, is yes. 
He's arguing from the greater to the lesser. If you're going to do these things in the eschaton, in the, in, in the final day of judgment, uh, you're going to, to judge these eternal weighty mass matters. Can't you make decisions about these small temporal things? Of course, you can. He's also calling out their inconsistency because they are being inconsistent. He says, you guys refuse to make judgments. You have this man in the church. Everybody knows he's sleeping with his father's wife. And you are so very proud of your tolerance. And then you take your personal issues and you go out into the world of the courts and you have someone else decide those for you. Paul's aghast. He can't believe that they would have the audacity to do such things. So, to help us understand how great this is, we're going to do a little sidebar for a moment here about the judging of the world and angels. Paul brings clarity to it because it's a bit murky, I guess I'll say, if you look at the other passages in Scripture. But the fact that Paul says, and Paul speaking by authority of the Holy Spirit, we will judge the world and we will judge angels, it is so. And so his is a commentary on what the other Scriptures say. So let's just look at a couple of them. Matthew 19:28. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me, you who are my disciples, in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So he is saying there is a participatory judgment by those who are his followers then over the twelve tribes of Israel doesn't say anything about the world. That's why we need to read on. And why we have to uh, add uh, Paul's comments as well. Revelation 3.21 He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. In the book of Revelation, the overcomers are believers. True believers, true saints who who have persevered to the end and demonstrated their true faith. And they are the ones who are the overcomers. Fast forward to chapter 20 of uh, Revelation. And John says, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them. Interestingly, the antecedent of they goes all the way back to chapter 3. They sat on them, and judgment was given to them. The overcomers, the saints, the believers, those who had persevered to the end. We know that Jude tells us that angels will be judged. The angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. We know that those uh, demonic forces will be judged one day. And Paul tells us that we are the ones who will take part in the judgment. He says, tells us in 1 Corinthians 6. But I also want you to see that not only are we looking at the judgment that we will take part in, but what about our present standing in Christ, how that, is, how that affects this? Our present and future standing affects our present practice always. So in Ephesians 1, speaking of Christ, it says this, 
in verse 19, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Christ is seated above every angelic majesty, every rule of authority on this earth, every local magistrate, every king, every kingdom, every whatever, every level of authority on this earth, Christ is seated above them. And then he, and he says, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In the final age, he, he reigns and rules now, he reigns and rules then, and he goes on to say in verse 22, and he put all things in subjection under his feet. That's quite a pretty picture. Everything is under the feet of Christ. He put everything in subjection under his feet, and he gave him, the Father gave him, head over all things to the church. He said of the church as well, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's the present reigning and rule of Christ to be extended to all ages, he said. So where do we fit in? We fit in in Ephesians chapter 2, the next chapter. This says this in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's where you are in principle and in practice right now but the purpose is in verse 7 so that in the ages to come which is in the ages where Christ will one day rule and reign and judge he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus at the final judgment we are seated with him he represents us he comes to that judgment he says I'm with them basically they're with me because we are so united with Christ forevermore that all that is true of Christ is true of us, and we will be there at that judgment. It's remarkable. And that's the, the, the argument that Paul is making to the Corinthians. Now, just a little backtracking in Corinthians for, for a moment, because uh, and I don't have space to put all these up, but I just kind of flip back through the chapters, uh, kind of looking, what, what has Paul said that is wonderful and true and good about the Corinthians that is also true of us? Let me just list a few, okay? We have been sanctified. We are saints set apart from the world. We've been given all grace. These are, the, the, these are the words of Paul. We have in everything been enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. We are not lacking in any gift. We will be confirmed blameless in the day of Christ Jesus. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, all in Christ, because you're in him. We have a faith, he says, that rests not that rests in rather the power of God and not in the wisdom of man. Chapter two, verse five. He says we have received the spirit of God, not the spirit of the world. Verse 11 in that same chapter for this purpose. 
knowing the things of God. Because the natural man cannot know the things of God. He said, then we have the mind of Christ. He said, we are the temple of God in which the Spirit dwells. He said, we are not to boast in men because he has given to us all things. Because we belong to Christ. And he said, we are stewards of the eternal mysteries of the gospel, including the scriptures. We have the power of God's kingdom in verse 20 of chapter 4. So the point to the Corinthians is this. Since you will one day judge the world and angels and all these things are true of you, don't you have the wisdom? Don't you have the sense? Don't you have the skill, the ability, the power, the authority, all given by God to you to resolve disputes in your midst? Of course you do. That's why he says, don't you have the audacity to take these things before the world when you have all that you need in Christ? So what about that judge, that agnostic judge, that atheistic judge, or even the Christian judge who, by the way, has to follow the law of man, right? What do they bring in here that we don't already have? What do they bring to the table of Christian disputes that we don't have and possess in Christ? They, they have nothing for us. They don't have what we have. We have all that we need in Christ. And when there is sin in the camp, we have all that we need to deal with it. Whether it's immorality, whether it's disputes and lawsuits, we have what we need. The application, I think, is very simple and very easy and very obvious. When you have a problem with a brother, seek personally to be reconciled to that brother. Because God has given you all you need to achieve it. You do. You have all that you need to achieve any kind of dispute that goes on between you and another Christian. If you say you don't, then you just, you, you just deny all of those things that we just said and read in the Scripture. For they are true. It's a matter of faith, is it not? It's a matter of faith and obedience to do what God has said. Always start at the lowest level. Always start with just you and that brother. Uh, we'll talk about moving on later to what, what is the next step. But always start just with that brother. Because Christians of all people in the world should be able to resolve disputes amongst people. So for, for Paul, you know, in this time in which he lived, uh, maybe you had a, a guy who he's got his chariot and something's wrong with his chariot and he takes it to the chariot repairman who happens to be another brother in the church, right? And he takes his chariot in there and, and, and his brother repairman says, oh, let me take a look at it and I'll tell you what's wrong. Comes back later and he says, it's the transmission. Oh, no, the transmission, that's going to cost me a lot of denarii, Right. So he comes back a couple of days and he takes his chariot out and gets down the road, literally a piece, and he realizes it's still making that funny noise, it's still grinding, something's wrong. And he takes it back to his brother and the Lord, who gave him the 10% Christian discount, by the way, because he had a coupon from the Christian Yellow Pages. And he says, my transmission's not working on my chariot. You didn't fix it. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. Where do you go from there? 
Paul is saying those two men have the ability to resolve that issue. And that they don't is, is, is shameful. And the ethical teachings of Christ, of the gospel, of patience and forgiveness and grace and reconciliation and the glory of Christ should supersede everything else that they're talking about. That should be the number one issue as brothers. We need to resolve this thing between us. And so do that, brothers and sisters, if there's something between you and another. So the gospel is sufficient to resolve these things, but what if, what if not? Number two, in verses four through six, the gospel, unfortunately, is disgraced. The gospel is disgraced when we abdicate this justice to the world, this justice, so to speak, or these judgments. Gospel's disgraced when we do that. He says in verse four, So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, and he's picking up from verse 3 where he said, do you know that we will judge the angels? How much more matters of this life, these, these small little potatoes, these temporal things? So if you have law courts dealing with these small little potatoes, temporal things, why do you appoint judges who have no place in the church? And, and this is to your shame. Why do you go to those who don't even know the Lord? Yeah, there are these earthly courts. But Paul is, is kind of tr- turning around his previous words where he said, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? The answer is nothing. Here he's saying, what does the outsiders have to do with judging us? Nothing. You appoint those who have no standing in the church. You know what? They don't have any wisdom. They don't have the jurisdiction, really, in the church. I know Revelation, uh, excuse me, Romans 13, yes, it says that uh, we are to go to the civil magistrates and we are to submit to the, the governing authorities when there's, there is uh, criminal things that take place and the, and the law is meant to, to protect us. But Jesus also said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. This is God's. This is God's place. These are God's people. These are the redeemed. And this is where the authority and the jurisdiction is. So he's saying, why do you abdicate that jurisdiction to outsiders? They have no place in the church. They have no stake in the church. They don't understand the gospel. They don't live by the gospel. They have a totally different worldview, and yet you're handing them your problems. And then in verse 5, he says, I say this to your shame. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man? He's using sarcasm here. Remember what the book of 1 Corinthians has been about. It's, a lot of it has been about wisdom, right? Oh, they're so wise, the Corinthians. And yet he has said that the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. And they're living again as if they do not understand the gospel. I say this to your shame. Before he said, when, uh, back in, in chapter 4 when he said, uh, oh, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. And then he went on and he said, I don't say these things to shame you. I say these things 
to appeal to you as my children in the church. But because they have taken these things outside of the church into the world, it is to their shame. And it is to the shame of the gospel. This matter should be settled in-house. This is the way he puts it. He says, Is there not among you one wise man, pay attention to the wording here, who will be able to decide between the brothers? He doesn't use the word judge here. He uses a softer word, a word that means to make a choice. The idea is, don't you have someone you can sit down with, not by litigation, but just make a harmonious agreement and an understanding? Can't you reach some kind of mutual agreement by wise arbitration of someone else? Can't you do that? The answer is yes, you can. Why didn't they? I think they were lazy. I think they were just, it was too hard, too hard to apply the uh, the gospel to problems in life. You know, it is hard. It is hard. It's hard. Confrontation is hard. It's a big part of, of ministry, believe me, is confrontation of people. And it's very difficult. I don't like doing it, and, and nobody likes doing it. But it's necessary sometimes for the sake of the gospel. By the way, this does not prohibit all lawsuits. There, are, there is a place for, for lawsuits in the world. Um, Johnny Depp, defamation, law, the, the world allows for that. Um, someone injures you or you suffer some kind of loss, you can't continue your job and, and you, you lose your livelihood, there is a proper place to, to, uh, to get uh, justice in a case like that. But even for the Christian to go in a lawsuit... With an unbeliever, I think you need to think very hard about it. I think you need to be very, very careful about it. But it's as clear here as it's clear in the previous chapter. You know, the big lesson is don't sleep with your father's wife, right? Okay, that's the big lesson. And the big lesson here so far is don't sue your brother. It's very simple. We have criminal laws. That's another matter. And sometimes it's necessary to call the police, right? But we're talking about the kinds of things that can be resolved in the church. Personal disputes should not be abdicated to the world. The principles that we're talking about are these. When we became Christians, we reject the standards of the world, right? We, we, we embrace a Savior. We, we embrace another worldview. We embrace a set of standards and values and ethics that come from Christ. That's what Paul has been saying to the Corinthians since chapter 1. Second of all, the church should take care of family matters. Notice the, the repetition of brothers and brothers and brothers and brothers in this passage. Your brothers... We are the brethren, brothers and sisters. This is a family matter. It's like that those parents suing their kids because they won't give them grandkids. It's audacious. It's ridiculous. Same here. Next, the world has no jurisdiction in the church. Romans 13, yes, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But when it comes to these things, we have the authority. We have a God-given jurisdiction and authority and we have the wisdom that only comes from God. Next, we definitely should not parade our problems before the world. And when we do, what does the world think of us? 
They laugh at us. They scorn. Just like we laugh at that couple suing their children. When as Christians, the same thing happens. We are thought of as odious. And the last one here, we cannot abdicate to the world what God has entrusted to us. This is something very clearly throughout the scriptures that is entrusted to us to resolve disputes between brothers and sisters in Christ. It has been entrusted to us. It is our responsibility to, to, to work out to that trust and to be faithful to it. But there are other things that we abdicate to the world as well, are there not? We abdicate to the world counseling, that only the professionals in the world can counsel people. Well, Christians don't have enough. We don't. All those things that we said that, uh, that God has given to us, if we are going to be able to one day judge the world and angels and all the things that are true of us, we've been given all things pertaining to life and godliness. And yet, for some reason, Christians have this idea that, well, I need some counseling, therefore I need to go to a professional. Not necessarily. We have Christ We have something the world does not have. We have the wisdom of God, the wisdom of the ages given to us in Christ. And so we need to be careful about abdicating that to the world. Another thing that we abdicate to the world is, we abdicate to the government is the education of our children. Parents, you need to know that number one, your responsibility for the education of your children is not your public school teacher. It isn't even your Christian school teacher. It is you. Don't advocate your children's discipleship and your children's intellectual development and, and um, psychological development and spiritual de- development to someone else. It's your responsibility. We're in a tough time. We have some wonderful teachers at Valley Bible Church that some teach in Christian schools, some teach in, in public schools. And we have parents who are up in arms. They don't know what to do. We have parents and teachers are going, how much longer can I hold on? How much longer can I be in this system before I have to eject? Because I don't know what I can handle. How can I continue to be faithful to Christ? And my heart goes out to you, teachers. And my heart goes out to you, parents who are struggling right now. Pray for Valley Bible Church that we might find ways to shepherd families who need help right now. Because not every family can homeschool. Not every family can um, uh, send their children to, to private Christian schools. And there are some families, because of the particular school, they should not have their children in a public school. It, it, it's hard. We're in a tough spot. Pray. Pray for Valley Bible Church that we might be able to find the proper way to shepherd our parents so they can shepherd and educate their children. So... All that to say, we cannot abdicate to the world these things that God has given to us. So, the application, what do you do? When you are at odds with a brother, what do you do when you, um, you're out at this impasse and your brother, you know, okay, brother in the church, um, you bought this, we bought a, a lawnmower for the church a couple of years ago. You can spend a lot of money on a zero radius lawnmower. You know that, riding lawnmower? 
So you buy a one, uh, you know, brother buys a lawnmower from his brother, gives him a, a deal of $3,000, and he gets it home, and he's, he's, he's riding the lawnmower, and the first swath of grass, clunk, the engine stops. Loads it up and takes it back to his brother. Hey, brother, you're never going to guess what happened. I need to get my money back. Sorry, no refunds. But we're Christians. Sorry, no refunds. Well, what do you do? What do you do? Do you, do you take that person to court then? You take them to small claims court to get your $3,000 back? It's a lot of money, right, to some people. A.T. Robertson, again, said that there should be disputes about matters of this life is bad in the church. That Christians should go to law with Christian is worse. That Christians should do this before unbelievers is worst of all. Last place Christians should end up is in court, small claims court or otherwise for something like this. So what do you do? You appeal to your brother personally. And I know that's hard to go to a person with your hat in your hands and say, we need to talk. We have this thing between us. In most cases, you will be able to humbly work it out. Honestly, you will. But you have to have the courage. And you have to, you have to make uh, the glory of Christ the, 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 the greatest goal in what you're doing. You have to apply the principles of the gospel. But what if that person does not listen to you? What if the person with the lawnmower says, sorry, you've got to keep this thing. I'm not taking it back. Seek another wise person to arbitrate. That's what Paul says. Do you not have even one wise person in the church? I want you to look around this room for a minute. Everybody turn your heads and kind of look around. Turn around, look. How many, how many gray hairs do you see in this room? <laughs> you know what that represents? Wisdom. We have wise people in this church who can help you. And rather than take that person to court, say, hey, do you trust Blake McKinley? I do too. Let's sit down and have coffee with him. Honestly, that's what you do. You know what? It doesn't have to be another, uh, an, an elder. It doesn't have to be a pastor. It should be anyone who is wise in the church. Not everything is church discipline, okay? You know, we had a church discipline case here recently, and just in studying and refreshing myself and reading articles about it, one thing that struck me was a lot of times Christian writers, um, they approach it as, you know, uh, Matthew 18 says, if your brother sins, go to that person in private and, and talk to them. And they say, well, you're at stage one of church discipline. Nah, not everything is church discipline. I think that's too drastic. Because resolving issues is found throughout the New Testament, not just in Matthew 18. It's a commonly taught principle throughout the Scriptures. So not everything is about that. You don't have to, you don't have to tell me about it. You don't have to tell one of the other staff pastors or one of the elders or the deacons. Just go to that person. Just find someone who's wise Sit down, let's talk, let's have a meal together. Let's fellowship and work this thing out. Be ready to admit wrongdoing. Yeah, my, my experience is this. Um, it takes two to tango, let's put it that way. There is the one who has wronged, and then there is, there is the one who is wrong, but usually both are wrong, in some sense. Matthew 7 Take the log out of your eye. Then you will be, you'll see clearly 
to talk to your brother. You, you might have to say, you know, we need to talk, but first of all, I need to apologize for my attitude. I need to apologize for my part in this thing. And when you do that, you have a uh, much more likelihood of success with your brother. Be ready to forgive and be ready to make rest- restitution if your brother will not, I mean, but be ready. If you are the one who sold the, law, the defective lawnmower, be willing, be ready to do, what, do the right thing before God. But what if that brother will not be reconciled? It's still not a matter of church discipline. What Paul is dealing here is, with is we need to start at the, just the lowest level of dealing with uh, uh, disputes with one another. But what if can't work it out? The answer is found in this passage in verses 7 and 8 where Paul says, The gospel is worthy of personal loss to preserve Christ's honor. Gospel is worthy of loss on our behalf. Paul asks two questions. First of all, he says this in verse 7. Actually, it's already a defeat for you, he says, that you have lawsuits with one another. It's already a defeat. You know, when, um, when we, someone wrongs us, maybe there's some personal uh, loss or financial loss, and, uh, you know, we're just ticked about it. Our first thought is not usually just accepting the wrong or the loss, but we want to be vindicated. We want to be proved right. We want uh, restored that which rightly belongs to us. It's a matter of principle, right? Paul says these two, gives these two, two questions. Why not just rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Ladies and gentlemen, sometimes we just take it in the chin. That's what he's saying. For the sake of the glory of Christ. So you, okay, you you go to court and you win your case. Yay. What did you win? It's a Pyrrhic victory. For those of you who are from Green Acres, Pyrrhic means too much of a cost, okay? It's not worth it. It wasn't worth it. Okay, you won your argument. So what? So you have these two judges in their chambers looking at the docket for the day. Hey, what you got going today? He said, oh, I got another go around with these yahoos from Christ our King Bible Church. Oh, what's that all about? He says, well... During the last storm, a tree fell over, broke one of his brother. You know, these two Christians, one's a deacon, one's just a brother, a you know, Christian in the church, and they know each other. The, the, the tree fell over and broke down the, the fence and, and uh, knocked over his, uh, his patio cover. For some reason, the insurance isn't paying, and so these guys are going at it. You would not believe what's happening with these. If, Christ, if that's Christ the King Bible Church, I don't want to go there. And they're, too, they're guffawing and, and making fun of these Christians. Can you see that happening? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what happens. The world rails against us. The world laughs at us. Just like we're laughing at the, the parent who's suing their child to have grandkids. They look at us just as badly. 
Paul says it's better to be wronged and defrauded. Because the real victory is your choice to suffer wrong. Your real victory is to suffer wrong for the sake of the gospel. Sometimes we just absorb the loss. Sometimes we just absorb the the hurt and we absorb the cost. But you know what? God knows. You don't have to tell people about it, but God knows when you choose to do that. But when you win a court case against a brother out in public, it is a net loss, isn't it? What is lost? Our testimony is lost before the world. You lose your brother. You lose your own peace and joy. And perhaps you even lose for a time the favor of God. Until you repent. That's why we have all that we need to make restitution and to resolve issues Make apology and restitution if necessary if you are the one who wronged the other person, but do it for the sake of your relationship with your brother and the, and the cause of Christ. Verse 8, he says, On the contrary, this is how he leaves it really badly, you yourselves wrong and defraud, you do this even to your brothers. We're going to see next week, he's going to say, these are not the principles of the gospel. These are the things for which Christ died. These should not be characteristic of you. The Corinthians, he's saying to them, you are not living like believers. You're not living out the principles of the gospel. So what are the principles of the gospel? Let's just list a few. What does God require of us? What does God desire of us? First of all, follow the example of Christ. First Peter 2.21, For you have been called for this purpose. Brother and sister, you were called for this purpose since Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. And here's the example. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. While being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to God who judges. He didn't say to those who were beating him, wait a minute, wait a minute, you don't understand. He didn't say, well, it's a matter of principle, you shouldn't be beating me. No, he took it for us. He literally took it on the chin. Follow the example of Christ, follow the teaching of Christ. We know this, but we don't, we, this is one of those uh, verses we quote very often, but, but do we follow it? Matthew 5.39, I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat too. Give him the shirt, give him whatever. Follow the teaching of Christ's apostles, Galatians 5.13. For you are called the freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity to the flesh, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by each other, because you just implode. 
Romans 12. Notice Paul is dealing with problems in all the churches that he writes to. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Romans 14:19. So then, we pursue the things which make for peace and building up of one another. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. These are the principles of the gospel, are they not? Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so also should you. You see, if we start and we live this way, then we never get to the place of going to court. If we live the principles of the gospel always, then we will never end up in court. We should never. And Paul says in verse 14 there, beyond all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. In which Paul said in 1 Corinthians, we'll get there in due time, 13. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked does not take into account a wrong suffered, doesn't keep track of wrongs, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, and the idea is, is, this, uh, is it bears up in silence rather than trying to make your case. We just bite our tongue. We're wronged, we're defrauded for the sake of the gospel. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. You can never go wrong with love, ever. Because love covers a multitude of sins. It does. So, in the words of that great sage and possibly a prophetess, Elsa, let it go. first part's not true. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Why? For the sake of the glory of Christ. For the sake of your brother. For the sake of peace. So in conclusion, the gospel is not only that by which we are saved, but it is that by which we live. It's not just a ticket to heaven. It's a lifestyle empowered by the word and the indwelling spirit and all that is given to us that we would live those principles and ethics taught and lived and died for by Christ. That's what we're all about as, as a church. As you prepare your elements, we just read 1 Peter 2, where we are to follow the example of Christ, and the example that Christ gave us was that he suffered for us, and when he suffered, he didn't retaliate, and he didn't try to get his own way, and he didn't try to say, we need to make this right. No, he did it for us. In fact, that verse goes on, that passage goes on to say this, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Look at the purpose. Not, he doesn't say so that you get to go to heaven. He said, so that we might die to sin and live righteous. 
that's the gospel. Living above sin, dying to sin, and living righteously. For you are continually straying like sheep, but now we have returned to the shepherd and guardian of our souls. All we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. As you take a moment to contemplate the, the table this morning, the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, the cup, and the bread. Remember this. When Paul instituted this in 1 Corinthians, it was for things over this that he said, some of you are sick and some of you sleep. You need to, you need to partake of this in a worthy manner. If there is something in your life, brother or sister, if there's something between you and a brother and a sister, Make it right now. Do the right thing. Maybe you take it on the chin. Maybe you are wronged and defrauded. But if there's someone that needs to help you with that, find someone that needs to help you with that. Maybe it's something, maybe this has been many, many years that there's been something between you and a brother, brother in Christ. Paul is very serious. We cannot just take of communion week after week after week and not pay attention to the fact that we are not in fellowship with others. So take a moment to partake in a worthy manner. Would you pray? Father, none of us are, are worthy and, and we're, that's not lost on any of us. And we could spend a lot of time declaring our unfittedness to partake of the bread and the cup. But we do this, Lord God, because Christ died for us and we proclaim his death until he comes at the great judgment where we will be with him. May we in the meantime live out the principles of the gospel and if there is anything um, that is holding us back, I pray, Father, your spirit to convict us. Our hearts know. And we confess our sins to you knowing that you are faithful and you do cleanse us. So, Father, we, we seek to partake in a worthy manner this morning. And we thank you for the, the assurance of pardon that comes from Christ our Lord. In his name we pray, amen. And he said, do this in remembrance of me.